Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend Luke Boggs. Uh, Luke, how's it going down there? Uh, it's going pretty good. I've had some interesting conversations lately, so I'll be excited to bring it to you guys. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing those, both for my editing and then for uh, for you guys all to be able to listen to these too. Uh, but that'll, that'll be coming later. Always fun things to look forward to with this show. Uh, but for this week's show, um, we're going to talk about the adoption bill and the conclusion to the adoption bill that uh, both the House and the Senate and Governor Deal have appeared to come to um, earlier last week, the Senate accepted uh, an offer, a compromise offer from the House on that bill. Um, they had just some minor issues. It, it wasn't like the whole uh, whole sum of the bill was up for negotiation between the two. They were trying to iron out some final differences between the House and the Senate that we'll talk about. Uh, but they came to a conclusion, and uh, Governor Deal has said that he is going to sign the bill. He's looking forward to signing it, and he may have already signed it by the time that you hear this podcast. So we're going to talk about that. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the confidential memo that the Stacey Abrams campaign wrote about her strategy to combat Stacey Evans during the rest of the Democratic primary uh, we're going to talk about some of the claims that she makes in that memo and her strategy that she lays out about spending money early, setting up a ground game, and uh, basically reversing the strategy that Democrats have taken in the past. Uh, so we're going to talk about whether or not that's good and some of the other things from that memo and what this and what last week's fundraising reports tell us about these two campaigns. Uh, but let's start with the adoption bill. So as we noted in the beginning, the House and the Senate have finally agreed to an adoption bill. This is a bill that's been three years in the making that intends to basically update the entirety of Georgia's laws around adoption. And the goal of the bill broadly has been to streamline the process so that it is both cheaper and more quick for parents in Georgia to adopt children. Um, there were a lot of stories that came out during this debate about how uh, parents from Georgia actually go to other states to try to find children that they can adopt because the process is so slow and painful in Georgia. Um, so the goal here was to update these laws, but brought into this debate about updating the laws was a religious liberty discussion about whether or not people who conduct adoption should be allowed to refuse to allow a child allow a child to be adopted out to a same-sex couple. Um, and that created this discussion around the potential desire among people, uh, people in the faith community to have a sort of a separate adoption system that is sort of outside of state oversight, something, something separate from the current foster care system. Um, and, and part of what was asked for when uh, this, this whole concept started to come out was the idea that churches should not when when churches participate in adoptions they should not have to adopt out the kids out to same-sex couples let's start though luke with uh just kind of the legislative fight over this bill um so luke how do you what do you think about how this whole process went down and the fact that we have been debating an adoption bill now for almost three years where broadly everybody agrees about what needs to be in it, but we can't seem to cross the finish line until now? Well, I think in a lot of ways, this is basically the state level equivalent of the immigration debate that we are seeing in Washington in the sense exactly what you said is that like 90% of this, everyone agrees on not only what the problems are, but what the solutions were. And that, you know, again, we've said a couple times, and most of the time when you read about this issue, it comes up. We had a bill last session that passed through the House unanimously. Everybody voted for it because everybody wanted to get this done. This has been a priority of both parties and has had a lot of bipartisan support and a lot of bipartisan work gone into it. And so... Just like with immigration, everyone had a pretty broad idea of what needed to be done and what uh, you know they wanted to see out of it. And just a couple people in the Senate would continuously put in these things that were not were not helpful to the conversation and was they were creating a problem in the adoption system that really didn't exist when we're trying to make the process easier for more kids to get into good homes. And they were creating a system that would 
make it worse rather than better. And that's pretty much the same thing we're seeing with the immigration debate in Washington. And luckily, we were able to push past that and get a bill to Governor Deal that, you know, for the most part is what we all originally supported. Yeah, for the most part, the social conservatives that were pushing legislation or, or pushing an amendment to this bill that would not allow that would allow faith-based adoption agencies to not adopt out kids to same-sex couples, they basically relented on that amendment as being uh, conditional on their votes for the bill. And so that was part of how it got out of the process. We'll talk about the other part of it, which is this power of attorney issue and and allowing uh, parents to let go custody of their children for a short period of time without any kind of state oversight. Um, but the the thing that I found really interesting about this, and I found it to be really problematic, to be quite honest, is that the issue over same-sex adoptions was sort of the first salvo, the first request from uh, religious conservatives asking for a separate faith-based adoption institution or adoption programs that are run by churches and that are run outside of state oversight for the most part. And I found this really problematic because the first thing that was asked for was these protections to not adopt to same-sex couples. And what you're asking for was creating a system outside of state oversight. And the first thing you're asking for when you do that is asking for a license to discriminate against same-sex couples who want to adopt kids and against kids who uh, may grow up and have questions about their identity or their orientation. And it, it raised real alarm bells for me about how much can we actually count on this separate system that is under discussion that it, there's not a bill to do this right now, but this is sort of the push uh, behind this, how much can we actually count on a separate system without oversight to actually provide protections to vulnerable children in Georgia? Um, and I don't think that we got any good answers on that out of this session. Uh, Luke, what did you think of this emerging idea about this separate faith-based institution and uh, what problems that it could bring? Well, I think the the main thing I'm concerned about is exactly what we were just, you know, talking about. It's like the whole idea behind doing this bill was to try to make it simpler to adopt people in Georgia, make it cheaper, and have less red tape, and to create a separate system not only would defeat that purpose by making the system more complicated, it would also, uh, you know, put us in a situation where there's less oversight, and that's the last thing that we need with kids, like kids are, and, and a vulnerable population of kids. This is a population of kids that are already underserved and that we're trying desperately to get them, you know, more help and, you know, in the way of actually getting them placed with a family. And it doesn't seem like this would achieve that goal. It would seem like it would be detrimental to that goal. And even on that front, you know, there, there are valid arguments for religious reasons why someone, you know, might not want to, like an LBGT couple adopt a child. I strongly disagree with that. And I, you know, be very vehement in my disagreement with that, but you could make a valid argument. However, I don't think you can make a valid argument that that system should be unaccountable to the government system. And that would be separate from the government system. I just don't think that's the proper way to proceed with this. And it also begs, you know, to ask the question if, you know, uh, a family would refuse to accept someone because of their LBGT status. And are the church organizations not going to help uh, LBGT Christian kids? And I just don't think that's, you know, very helpful in this situation either. And so the door swings both ways on that. And I hope that now that we've improved the system and we've simplified it, that the conversation can kind of die there and that we've had our bite at the apple with this and that they're going to still talk about uh, potentially changing the system and bringing this stuff in, but that it's not something that actually happens. Yeah, I think, just think about the moment that we're living in right now. A lot of what has defined the MeToo movement and this uh, cultural pushback against sexual harassment and rape and assault in our culture is that large institutions have been covering up abuse and harassment in a variety of areas. You had that the case with USA Gymnastics that just concluded with that team doctor that uh, abused hundreds of girls, young gymnasts. Uh, 
Jim Galloway, shortly after this adoption bill uh, fracas ended, Jim Galloway wrote an article in the AJC about uh, sexual abuse within the Boy Scouts that went that was covered up and, and went unreported. And then if you look back further, this is not something that stayed out of churches completely either. You had the big uh, scandal of church altar boy abuse in Catholic congregations in the U.S. And, and in other places around the world. And so I don't like the lesson of the last decade and and really the last few months too has been that institutions have very often covered up for abuse and assault and allowed bad actors and institutions to take advantage of vulnerable people, whether it be young women or children. Um, And so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. I'm not accusing anybody in uh, some of these church groups that want to start this new adoption system of of wanting to get these kids so that they could be abused. Um, and I think on the most part, you know, like in 80 or 90% of cases, I think it would probably be fine. But I think the state has an interest when it comes to protecting against the worst case scenario. And the state has to foresee that. And so something that I just sort of like to frame this conversation around as it goes forward is if you're bringing this proposal forward from the perspective of the churches that want to start this brand new separate system, you got to prove it to us that there are going to be proper safeguards and accountability in place. And if you can't do that, then I don't see the reason to change the status quo, regardless of the struggles that are had in the current defect system, because there is not accountability there. And then to show up and the first thing that you ask for in this development of the new system is the right to discriminate against gay couples and potentially gay kids too. I just, I was like shocked and I I find this whole thing really highly problematic from the get go. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, luckily this proposal is not part of the final bill that reached the governor's desk. And I'm hoping that if they continue to proceed, trying to find, you know, put this into legislation that it's a bit more thoughtfully done and some of these considerations are accounted for. The other thing that I think I think is worth noting here is sort of separate from the adoption case. The reason that I'm also concerned about these kids is Huffington Post had a report a few weeks ago, and, and we'll link to this in the show notes, that took a look at religious schools that receive taxpayer funds and took a look at both the curriculums that the schools teach and uh, talked to some students that were in these schools. And the thing that really stood out to me was there there was a story of a student that was in one of these schools that was discovering that her orientation was different than uh, the one she was born with, the one she was thought to have. And she was ridiculed in school, bullied. And her experience in these schools derailed her education experience. And she had to go through this as a teenager. And so I think that that, you know, not only are, do you have to worry about uh, the discrimination being laid out by these churches saying that we don't want to adopt a gay families, but I think you have to have real concerns about how kids would be treated. I think that that is another thing that I, I would want to see these churches speak to and say, you know, that's going to be okay, or this is how it's going to be handled because you don't want a situation where you have a kid in a foster care system and, and, and they come out and then they're just kicked out of the church's system uh, because Lord knows if they would be kicked out and this, and the state wouldn't be told or, or what situation this kid would end up in. Um, I think that there are real uh, safeguards that need to be there. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, it, it, it begs the question, if we proceed this way and we introduce this separate system, what our values are and why, like, we have an adoption system to begin with. Because under, you know, my understanding, I would hope most people's understanding, it's, you know, the goal is is to place as many children with loving, caring families as possible. And I think both of the things that, you know, you just raised would go against that goal. So that's, uh, you know, why I'm happy we, at least so far, have gone in this direction. The one other thing I would mention, the reason that this issue has become so urgent lately is that the population of foster kids in Georgia is increasing pretty rapidly. And a lot of the reason for that increase is the opioid epidemic and other drug overdose issues where children are removed from homes of parents who 
have problems with addiction to drugs and are found to be not fit to raise their children. I mean, so the other issue that I think is worth laying on the table here is the thing that we need to do on top of finding good homes for these kids and, and working through this really tough issue of whether or not a parent has made significant enough mistakes to lose custody of their child um, is connecting these parents to services when they are in this situation. And the state not only does it run a foster care system, it also runs a healthcare system. It runs a Medicaid program. And Medicaid is one of the more important uh, healthcare options that allows people to get substance use disorder treatment. So you could see that it's pretty easy for the state to take a kid into foster care and then to try to find some treatment options for people with substance use disorders and and. The question that I would have for for non-state actors in this, particularly the churches, is are you going to connect parents to services like these? Are they going to be hosted in your church? Are you going to refer them to the state? Or if not, how are you being an equal partner in this issue if all you're doing is removing the kid from the family and not caring about the whole family and, and doing something for the parent too? That's another thing that I think it, it just needs to be addressed. You know, it's it's difficult to say anything one way or the other about where this is going to go because this is just kind of bubbling up. Uh, but there's a lot of other, there's a lot of big, really tough problems that need coordination across a variety of advocates for children and, and people who advocate on healthcare coverage and all the rest to address a really complicated issue and a really painful issue emotionally for families. Um, and I just, the, the first round of this does not make me confident that uh, that that's what the churches are going to do. Uh, but with that, uh, we'll move on to our second topic this week. So the AJC reported on a confidential campaign memo that was acquired from the Stacey Abrams campaign. And in this campaign, and in this memo, a uh, staffer for Stacey Abrams lays out both her her coming strategy against Stacey Evans in the primary and her fundraising strategy and how her how her strategy of spending money early in the contest, which I think has been really noticeable um, in the contest so far because her field operation has ramped up really quickly. And at least in comparison to the Evans campaign, it's a noticeable difference between the two campaigns. She makes the case for that strategy as to why it's better than both what you can infer about what the Evans campaign wants to do, given their fundraising numbers that came out and past campaigns that have been run by Democrats. But in in addition to laying out some of this stuff about her strategy, she also talks about how this meme of the two Stacys that's caught on during this campaign has been racially reductive and overlooks the difference in qualifications between Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams. And she lays out both her issue area topics that she wants to knock Evans on and um, some of the vulnerabilities that she feels that she has against Stacey Evans in the ways in which the Evans campaign is trying to attack the Abrams campaign. Luke, let's dive in with this discussion on their strategy in terms of how they're using the money they're raising uh, in this early burn strategy. Um, Do you think that it's a good idea for the Abrams campaign to kind of flip traditional strategy on its head, spend a lot of money early on field and groundwork and try to get out the vote early uh, in advance of their primary in May? Well, um, you know, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but we have not won uh, the governor's race in Georgia for quite some time. So some unconventional thinking is probably a positive thing. That being said, for those of you who listen to this show and somehow don't really pay close attention to campaigns, which I'm sure is a small demographic, one... Also me. No. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Fine. The we nuts have, and we bolts at least have campaigns. one. We have one person that needs to understand this. <laughs> like when, when Educate we. Me. Yes. Well, it's like okay. When I look at a campaign, I look at a couple metrics whenever their disclosure comes out to see how they're doing. And you know, obviously, the total amount raised is really important. The total amount spent is really important. But really, over time, as you see a campaign go on. The thing that really becomes important to me is the cash on hand and the burn rate. And the reason why, and, and for those of you who don't know, the burn rate means how quickly are they spending the money that they get in. And, you know, the thing that 
I've found amazing about the Abrams campaign is just like how high their burn rate has been. And that's again, 100% part of their strategy. And in comparison to some other campaigns that suffered from a really high burn rate, like Scott Walker's 2016 presidential race, this seems to actually like be part of a strategy rather than a lot of like wasteful spending. Um, because like Scott Walker was just like blowing money on like a bunch of consultants and a bunch of like fancy dingers and stuff. Like it was just like bad strategy, bad planning, bad budgeting. Whereas Abrams, her her burn rate's very significant, but it also at least seems to be like part of a plan, which is to start engaging voters way earlier. I don't know if it's a good idea before. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if it's a good idea to do this um, primarily before because it's never been done before. So I will be very very curious to see how it turns out. Uh, one of the big problems for Abrams is that the uh, turnout in the primary is usually not very good, and it usually leans towards um, more educated voters and people with more income, which unfortunately usually trends to be wider, and so that you know hurts uh, her chances some. If you know, lot, you know, conventional wisdom is to be ex- expected to go the way you think it would go. So I think it's interesting because if it pays off and that Abrams is able to get a bunch of people that have never voted in primaries before to turn out and win that way, then, I mean, that's a pretty good sign that she might be able to win November because the problem in Georgia has been traditionally around getting our voters to turn out because if everyone who voted for Hillary Clinton showed up at the polls in 2018 then like she would win pretty easily because there's plenty of democratic voters in the state that could get her over the top so if the pro so i guess i guess to like sum this all up and do the elevator pitch of my thoughts on this if it is true that the biggest problem in the democratic electorate in georgia is that they have not been engaged that you need to talk to them more and you need to talk to them earlier so that when you go to their door, you're not going in October and they're like, oh, it's the Democratic Party. They're here again in election season, which has happened to me several times when I've knocked on doors in Athens of where you go up to a door and they're like, oh, you know, see you see you again two years. So if they're trying to move away from that uh, and that's successful, then... It, it could be a good strategy. If not, then it means she's just like blowing a bunch of money really early and she's uh, not going to be able to adapt very well, which would be my concern, but we'll see. Yeah, I guess the two potential pitfalls is that maybe she runs out of money before the primary um, and then she's got to cut staff, cut expenses and, and kind of limps to the end of the primary. And I guess in that instance, even if she's like spent early and is still hoping to win, then she would hope that all of her get out the vote efforts in the beginning, uh, in combination with people just becoming more aware of the primary, would get them to turn out to vote and would just put her over the finish line in the the primary. But then you get to the general and you're starting out with very little money. Um, and I guess at that point, it becomes a question of whether or not just like general Democratic fundraising and sort of the resistance fundraising against Trump that is expected to create a wave in favor of Democrats in November, that whether or not that'll pick it up for her and just kind of carry her through. Um, or, or if it doesn't, then, then there's going to be real questions about uh, how much money she's going to have going all the way to November. Uh, Stacey Evans was asked about this by the AJC, and she told the AJC um, that it's important for whoever is the Democratic nominee to be able to go toe-to-toe with the Republican candidate financial management and the ability to raise in-state money is relevant. And I believe we've shown I'm the candidate who can do that. So yeah, this memo also comes out at the same time that the financial disclosures came out. And um, it turns out that the the total amount of money in play between Evans and Abrams is about the same. Um, they're, they're both a little over $2 million, but Abrams has already spent a lot of that money where Abrams is hanging on to it. And at least uh, 1.25 million of that money comes from Evans to her own campaign. Uh, Jim Galloway reported that just over 50% of the money that she's raised so far is actually uh, 
come to her campaign in a combination of loans and money that she's donated to herself. Um, so I guess, Luke, the other question that begs from that is, should we infer anything? Like, is it important that a lot of Evan's money comes from loans and, and donations to herself um, in terms of a demonstration of her fundraising ability? I think it's it's still a little bit too early to tell because, I mean, David Perdue loaned a ton of money to his campaign, and that really was not an indication of his success. Really what's an indication of is Evan's current name recognition, I think. And one thing that is really important to note, because it is something that Evans's campaign talks about a lot, is that pretty much all of their donations are coming from Georgia. And a lot of their donations are coming from prominent Georgia Democratic officials. And much of Abrams's money is coming from out of state. And mm-hmm. so the question I have is really how sustainable Abrams's model of fundraising is because if whoever wins the primary is going to get a lot more uh, money, I think, uh, you know, a lot more people will be willing to open up their donations in state. And I'm sure there's some donors sitting on the sidelines. Uh, but the question is, is, you know, if, if Abrams is going to be spending all this money and have this really high burn rate, is she going to be able to sustain that, all the way till May. And then if she does, is she going to be able to continue fundraising and spending at the rate that she has been? Whereas Evans, again, her donating a bunch of money to her campaign is not that weird. It happens all the time. Uh, I'm pretty sure a couple other of the gubernatorial candidates did that as well. And, you know, if her next disclosure does not show significant improvement and like she loans herself another million dollars, then I might be a little worried, but to my recollection, uh, Purdue, who is a Senator now, so, you know, it's not, uh, a death sentence for a campaign loaned himself at least 2 million. So it's not, it's not that out of the ordinary. $2 million and a jean jacket. Um, so the other parts of this memo uh, that were interesting, aside from the fundraising and uh, money spending strategy, was uh, Lauren Grow Wargo. She wrote in this memo that this meme of the two Stacys that has kind of come to be the shorthand for how you refer to the Democratic primary. She says it's quote racially reductive, and I was actually a little bit confused by why she decided to to frame that as racially reductive because the next part of the memo talks about how the differences between Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams are being overlooked because of this meme of two Stacey's. And she's arguing that Stacey Abrams not only served in the legislature with Stacey Evans, but that Abrams was a party leader and that she had a very successful career outside of uh, politics in the private sector. And went to Yale Law School and and all of these other personal accomplishments that are being overlooked uh, because you have this issue of the black Stacey versus the white Stacey. Um, but the differences in qualifications, I don't think we're, they don't really have anything to do with race or they're not demonstrative with race unless you, you take that, uh, the fact that Stacey Abrams is a black woman means that her qualifications are not respected. I don't, did you... Did you take anything away from that characterization, Luke, by the Abrams campaign? I just, uh, I, my my reaction to that is I'm wondering if I'm missing something uh, because I am in a different bubble than like most people, I would say, in the sense that I am someone who is a member of the Democratic Party of Georgia's executive board and that like I've at, I'm at state committee meetings and Really, I, I've heard the Battle of the Stacys many times. I've heard that phrase many times, and it has never, in my um, recollection, been a racial thing. Really, it's been a joke that everyone's like, I support Stacy, ha ha ha, because I'm not going to tell you who I'm actually supporting because I'm a party official. So it's kind of weird that they're saying that. So I'm just wondering if I'm missing this and this is something that people are actually saying somewhere and that there are, you know, that there is like this real battle between the Stacy's and there's like some, you know, the, the only art, cause I, I want to be fair. I mean, there is 
an equivalency to the legitimacy of both of these candidates. And there's a narrative coming from some folks that I have noticed that Stacey Evans is not as qualified as Abrams. And for that reason, she should just get out of the race and that she has like no right to be in the race because Abrams is so tremendously qualified that it's sort of, you know, just not even on the same scale. Uh, I've been really um, uninterested in that conversation because I don't think having a degree from a fancier university makes you more qualified immediately. Uh, It obviously is a hint to that, but, you know, our current president went to some very prestigious schools. George W. Bush went to very (laughs) prestigious schools. And, like, that does not mean that you are automatically, hands down, no argument, going to do better at the job. Um, so plus, plus ask Steve Bannon, who went over next door to Alabama and shit on the University of Alabama in favor of Harvard. And do you see Roy Moore as a U.S. senator for a lot of I reasons? No. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, it's a fair point and you make a point, but it's not like the whole conversation. And then also, like, I don't really see a lot of rhetoric coming out of Evans's campaign or Evans's supporters that's like, I am the white Stacy, vote for me because I'm the white Stacy, and that is, you know, and there is a black Stacy in here, and, and please do not vote for her because of that. Like, I don't, I don't see that happening. And if I'm missing that, like, please someone send it to me because I'd love to condemn a campaign for doing something that stupid. But I'm not seeing that happen. And so. For me, the Battle of Stacey's narrative has always been kind of tongue-in-cheek and fun, and I'm kind of sad that, like, if it is true that that's not the case, then that makes me sad, because I've enjoyed it, and a lot of people in my circles have laughed a lot about it, because it's just the way that we deflect not saying who we're voting for. Um, (laughs) Well, and you have to talk to the Georgia win list about that, too, because I think that one of the first places that I started seeing that used among Democrats and not just national media framing the race as to Stacey's is... The Georgia win list, uh, when they held a forum between the two last fall, they said, well, we're with Stacey uh, because it was a room full of pro-choice Democratic women who don't want to have to choose which one of these two, I think, both highly qualified women uh, to be their nominee for governor. And I think for a lot of them, they're going to show up for whoever it ends up being because, you know, the, the, the difference between... Republicans and Democrats is so stark right now. Um, but the the funny thing is the most racially reductive uh, version of the two Stacey's meme that I've seen is the article by friend of the pod, Jason Johnson, entitled Black Stacey versus White Stacey, A Lesson in Race Politics from Georgia, where he outlines why people won't vote for Stacey Abrams because she's black and then has on repeated occasions written other articles trying to be in support of her. Um, so like <laughs> Kyle, you know, we're going to have to have him on. <laughs> we can't just keep attacking him and not have him on as a, as a funny side note. Um, Jason Johnson, he, he writes the articles on the route about this, but, uh, in his own personal blog, he took shots at a couple of reporters at the intercept and then Greg Bluestein at the AJC for, uh, noting Jason Johnson's bias. Uh, He also has a beef with the Intercept reporters because they were sending FOIA requests to him. Um, But he called Greg Bluestein a Bernie bro. And like, (laughs) what (laughs) he called, he said, he said, he said, it, is it really a coincidence that uh, this guy, Zaid Jelani, who's a writer at the Intercept and Greg Bluestein are about the same age and we're at UGA near the same time. Uh, And, you know, Greg Bluestein must be a Bernie bro. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm very I don't confused. Know. It just I don't know. like he's not a very serious character, uh, but he's a journalism professor. That's why we have to have him on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, open invitation anytime. You can yell at us. But the other uh, interesting thing about that article is it was after I had tweeted talking some nonsense about Jason Johnson, and I was not included. So I'm hurt Aww. personally that uh, just keep tweeting. He didn't him. come out. He'll me. eventually talk about you. Yeah. Um, um, the last thing I want to say on this before we move on to the other like awesomely insane part of this memo because I love th- I love this document. I just want to point that out. I love this document. I just want to reemphasize that these candidates are running because they have a different vision, though very similar. There are some notable important differences between what Stacey Evans wants and the path 
she wants for Georgia and what Stacey Abrams wants. And there's stylistic differences about how they would govern. And those things are not related to race. And so I don't want those differences to be minimized uh, into that narrative because it's just frankly not true. And that is really annoying to me and I think does not help the party or the campaign at all because the differences between them are not just campaign differences. Abrams lays out the campaign differences and some of the policy differences in, in this memo. Uh, you know, her team lays them out and I disagree with some of the characterizations, uh, as I would if Evans released a similar type memo. But at the end of the day, it's not just campaign strategy that separates these two candidates. There's some governing differences as well from both their legislative records and what they've talked about on the campaign trail. So I would not want us to minimize that. Oh, well, let's talk about some of those differences. And um, we're just going to discuss what we're going to discuss Abrams, what she lays out on these things. This memo just recently came out and I haven't dug into the votes on all of these issues. But let's just talk about Abrams perspective here or her campaign's perspective in the ways in which she wants to target Stacey Evans. Uh, She says that Evans supported NRA-backed legislation that was called the most egregious gun law in Georgia that puts confiscated firearms back on the street. She says this legislation was opposed by Democrats and law enforcement in Georgia. Um, She also knocks Abrams for having a B-plus rating from the NRA and and says that Evans voted as recently as 2017 with the NRA and took the opposite position of Abrams. She doesn't say what that 2017 vote was, so uh, not really sure about that. Um, But one of the issues that she is planning to knock Evans on and has actually uh, released some proposals today on is the issue of guns. And so, Luke, do you have any thoughts on trying to divide these two candidates on the issue of guns? So I want to, I want to clarify due to my faulty memory and due to the memo not specifically mentioning the votes, I cannot verify at this time what votes she's talking about and I can't I I can't remember. And so I'm not saying it's true or not. I just honestly don't know. Uh but let's assume it's true that like Evans did vote um on some of those gun bills. I remember the bills that they're probably mentioning, but I just don't remember her vote. Um I don't know how big of an issue it'll be. Uh, guns is one of those things in Georgia since it's a um, deep South state in the same way that like Bernie Sanders can get away with like having a pretty good NRA rating and voting for NRA stuff a lot because Vermont loves guns. Georgia is pretty similar. Um, I definitely did not support those bills, uh, but I don't think as far as like a progressive litmus test that those are good one, good bills to use. And really, I think what's interesting, and this has been brought up before by us and others, is when you look at that section of, like, the things that differentiate Evans and Abrams, it's kind of thin. Because the gun thing, I think, again, assuming it's true because they didn't mention the bills, uh, then that's probably the clearest distinction that they have. Because the education stuff is not nearly as black and white as... Abrams's team wants to make it look because Evans did not vote for a lot of the bills that Abrams mentions that she didn't vote for. That's absolutely true. But the reason that she did that is because she thought those bills were too conservative and that she was opposing them from the left, not opposing them because uh, she hates kids or something. Cause I can't really, there's not like a, there's not a really clear counter argument towards like why Evans did what she did and they just say that she failed to explain her alternative to the bipartisan changes which I don't think is really true because she did at the time so yeah that's that's sort of my feeling on it yeah I mean I think that the education stuff I I think that the policy to some extent is going to kind of be splitting hairs because both candidates propose and support expansions of the hope program now and the negotiations that went on uh, between Governor Deal and the Democrats and the Republicans in 20, I think this was like 2009, 2010, um, it was at the heart of the recession. And so I, I think that Evans probably has some legitimate beef about her complaints about how that outcome came out, but it was also a very difficult situation. And so I, I think what I would want to see is 
surrounding this discussion is a more full discussion of why. Well, I think, I think what you're trying to get at is that, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but like Evans has made like the centerpiece of her campaign, these hope battles. So like, I'd be kind of like shocked if Abrams didn't try to, uh, her team did not try to like spin the narrative on like how that went down. Because I mean, I, I am someone who, like, I'm very happy that I was not a state rep and did not have to vote on these bills because it would have been super hard for me to decide. Because as someone who literally was only able to go to college because of the Hope Scholarship, like, there's no argument there. I would not have gone to UGA if it wasn't for the Hope Scholarship. Evans's position is, like, very sympathetic to me because... Uh, I was one of the people that in my first year of coming to UGA, I experienced like significant cuts in the program. And so like, I understand like what I could have had and what I ended up having and standing on principle to get that done and to keep that position alive, I think would have been very important and helpful. However, I also see the value in what Abrams did, which I can't say for sure, but I imagine probably made the bill at least a little more progressive and some of the work, you know, as Abrams has said many times that she tried to fight stupid or at least slow it down. And so I think there's probably a very legitimate argument that she slowed down some of the stupider things they would have done with that legislation by supporting it and by uh, making it a bipartisan deal. So it's hard, it's hard to tell, Um, but it's uns... Oh, I think I think you're heading in the right direction for me. The thing that I was going to say is I don't want to see this come down to a debate on who's going to be the better champion for college students or who's going to be the better champion for our students uh, in some like flat one or the other distinction between the two. Because, look, we all know that both of you candidates want the best for Georgia students and you want to see these programs funded and you have differences of opinion about the process that happened during the debate on the uh, edge of the great recession. Um, And so there's a lot to learn there about their different philosophies about what you do to take tough votes and, and what the other alternatives might've been. But if this gets flattened out into one Stacy hates kids and the other one loves kids. Like that's nonsense. You, both of the candidates are better than that uh, in terms of arguing with each other and laying out the case to voters. And I think if, if this falls down to that kind of level of trying to differentiate between the two, uh, I'm going to be really disappointed because I know that both candidates are better than that. Um, and so I would like to learn more about their, you know, why the decisions were made and, and what the best options on the table were at the time and I'm more important, more importantly, more interested in the plans they have going forward because we're in a very different position now than we were then. The other issue that Abrams lays out, or that our that our campaign person lays out, is uh, wanting to knock Evans over Republican campaign culture manager. war. Cam- not campaign person. That's, that's I forgot not a title. Who, I, I didn't see the title. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, Lauren. Um, yes, Lauren, Lauren Grow Wargo, campaign manager. I don't think she actually wants her name out there because this thing is, uh, stamped confidential anyways. Um, but anyhow, the other, but is it, is it confidential? It's just, I can't remember who said it. Somebody said it on the political rewind. It's just so thrilling to read other people's mail and I shouldn't admit to that, <laughs> but it's just so thrilling. That's why they make it a felony to do so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other issue that her campaign manager points out is wanting to knock Evans over Republican culture war bills. Uh, she makes the claim that Evans supported quote, blurring the lines between church and state and voted to put a 10 commandment statue at the Georgia Capitol. And uh, the other one is that Evans found it necessary to quote, save us from the imaginary war on Christmas with her 2014 vote supporting legislation to quote, allow us to say Merry Christmas. Uh, I, for one quote, Merry Christmas as well. Huh? Yeah. There's so many quotes in that sense. Yeah. There's four, there's four quotes in that sense. (laughs) What do you think about, I, I I read this and I laughed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I did too, uh, to be honest, because like there's so many just like 
gimme bills at the Capitol where he's just like, yeah, whatever, and vote for it. Like, this, this to me, like, sounds like a resolution that they had. I don't know, because, again, they don't cite what these votes are. So, again, I'm just having to assume they're true. It's a stretch, especially because of the fact that there have been so many other votes on Republican culture war issues that this, to me... Sounds like they walked up to an intern and they're like, hey, intern, find some negative Stacey Evans culture war votes. And they found these two and they're like, good enough. Well, the uh, the other interesting I do appreciate thing is- the sass of it, though. The sass of four quotations in one sentence. Yeah. I, I like it. The other thing that I find interesting about this is that is the third bucket of attacks that she wants to make against Stacey Evans. The document concludes with Abrams' campaign manager accusing Evans of having a, quote, disastrous voting record. And number three on the disastrous voting record was the war on Christmas bill. Uh, And I bet if you laid out their votes side by side on everything, you'd probably see Abrams and Evans voting together at least seven or eight times out of ten. And so I'd be a little careful. Probably higher. Probably more like nine out of 10. I bet it'd be nine, but I want to be. Well, because the thing is, too, is just like almost every single piece of legislation that actually survives long enough to get onto the floor is usually just like little piggly, but very important things that like needs to get done. Like we're, you know, rewriting a code section to make it more, you know, uh, logical or, you know, include new technology and like all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, like, if you looked at, like, David Schaefer and Stacey Abrams, like, I would not be surprised if they voted the same way, like, seven out of ten times. And that's not, like, a sign of them being conservative or anything. It's just, like, so many of the bills are, like, to allow tractors to drive on country roads and stuff like that. So, we only deal with the important problems in Georgia. I'd be a little careful with that overstatement of Evans' quote, disastrous voting record. Uh, right. I'm not a data journalist, so we're not going to do the numbers, but... Uh, I bet somebody else will. Um, The final thing out of this memo that I think is worth talking about is a major area of vulnerability that Abrams campaign manager sees for their campaign is the potential for a Stacey Evans, Vincent Fort ticket where Vincent Fort runs for governor and then Vincent Fort takes on the sort of vice presidential candidate role of being the attack dog against the opposing campaign. Uh, this is a feud that goes back between Stacey Abrams and Vincent Fort for quite a while, doesn't it? Yeah, they, uh, you know, I, I find time to like learn these little personal disagreements just because they actually end up affecting policy so often in an insane way. And yeah, just like, you know, you hear things. And one thing I've always heard is like, yeah, Vincent Fort and Stacey Abrams don't like each other. Uh, and that's that's just something I've heard a lot. I've I heard kind of in general that the Senate didn't like uh, Abrams very much, and uh, Vincent Fort was in the Senate leadership, so there's probably some uh, connection to that as well. And so, it it would be a very interesting thing if this is true that they are worried about this. And uh, just to be clear, I am firmly in the camp that this was a quote unquote confidential document in the sense that they wanted it to get out. And I'm just kind of curious why they put this in this document. I, see, I because actually I came... heard I heard about Vincent Ford potentially running for lieutenant governor before this memo came out, so I know they weren't trying to like leak that or anything. But it just seems it seems weird. It seems like they're trying. I think it seems like they're scared of it because, and they're trying to they're trying to like set the narrative up before it starts and i think that's sort of to me that makes them think that they're vulnerable they're vulnerable to it for some reason which i mean would kind of make sense uh if you're looking at it from like a thirty thousand foot view vincent ford is very very popular among uh bernie sanders supporters um he uh is african-american he's from atlanta a you know I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the thought process is here. It just seems like it's, I guess, I guess they're trying, I guess they're thinking that if Evans and, uh, Fort get together, that he can pick up some of the strength areas that Abrams has because Abrams has been endorsed by a lot of the outside progressive groups. And if Vincent Fort starts supporting Evans and that kind of complicates that, I guess. So yeah, I, I mean, it, it's interesting and it has some of the best, you know, language in here for sure it uh it's definitely interesting but 
I don't know. Vincent Ford didn't really blow the doors off the mayor's race. I did he get more than five percent of the vote? Uh, so I don't know. I don't really see it. I don't know. I guess we'll see. I mean, I can definitely see the attack dog role, and so he doesn't even have to run yeah. for LG to be the attack dog. Uh, but to think that by the end of this, Stacey Evans and Vincent Fort would be running the campaign to bring the governorship back to Democrats in November. Uh, Vincent Fort's campaign experience and and the outcomes of campaigns he's run in don't really speak to him being a real big asset on that ticket to me at least. Uh, and that that maybe fun though that assumes that he would even win the primary for LG because there's a a woman I think her name is Sarah Riggs Amico who's running for lieutenant governor uh, businesswoman who I think ran a trucking company. Um, and I think she's the only Democrat in the race right now. Um, she is the only announced Democrat that I'm aware of. So, you know, who knows if uh, Vincent Ford can get more than 5% of the vote in the primary. All right. So that I think we're going to wrap the show up for the week. Uh, but Kyle, what's that? Forgetting. What am I forgetting? We, we, we have the dramatic reading to do. We have a dramatic reading? We do. We had our first piece of hate mail. And we, we we have asked. We have begged, pleaded to get mail. It's we finally have mail here. Now. America's finally, finally great again. We're finally great again. Yeah. And so with that, I present to you one fine citizen from the great state of Texas. <clears throat> Lick Boggs, your speech impediment makes it impossible for many of us to listen to this podcast. Find another line of work. Oh, you're our first hate mail. Congratulations. Truth is always best. Y'all come across as two effeminate bag of males just sprouting rehashed talking points. Derp to derp to derp. Oh, well, uh, dear leader Pelosi will be glad to hear that you think we're on message. But by the way, did you know that the Democrats were totally fucked by what the memo said about crooked Hillary? Did you see it? He did not answer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our new friend of the pod brian owens he sent us our first hate hey brian mail. how's it going and i wanted to mess did with you him. make it this far brian <laughs> could you deal with my speech impediment brian <laughs> so uh and then i tried to mess with him about the memo but he didn't take the bait the memo didn't say anything uh, about crooked hillary so <laughs> it's probably about the only you, brian thing, the only thing from the republicans that I mean, I guess it technically included Hillary, but yeah, we love you, Brian. In fact, if you'd like to come on the show, we'd love to have you. <laughs> we are really in need of an alpha male to keep this shit together. So <laughs> we need you, Brian. More Owens. than we know, <laughs> Brian Owens, help us out. Uh, with that, we're actually closing things out. So for Brian Owens and Luke Boggs, I'm effeminate beta male Kyle Hayes, and we will talk to you <laughs> next week. Goodbye. <laughs> That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.